0: Good morning everyone. We are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. That's a famous and a favourite line from the Bible describing Christians. More than conquerors. You can find it in Romans chapter 8. It's a great line. It's a stirring description. More than conquerors. But you know what? I just think so often it doesn't really seem to match reality. More often than not in my life at least... I don't feel like more than a conqueror, I'd feel like less than a copa, lots of the time really, because life is hard and I think that I see that in my Christian brothers and sisters too, you don't often look like more than conquerors, we seem to battle with the same things that everyone else seems to battle with, busyness, demanding bosses, ill health, depression, aging, disappointment, powerlessness, debt. And of course as Christians we we have to battle with extra things as well, don't we? Temptation, opposition. As a group we don't much look like more than conquerors. And yet according to God we are. Although I need to remind you of the rest of the sentence that the phrase comes from in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. In fact, In that chapter, it's in the very midst of describing our struggles as Christians that the Apostle Paul wrote, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's the through him who loved us that we need to grab onto, of course. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And that's what we're going to be thinking about today. How is it? that we are more than conquerors through him. And so, as Wayne mentioned, and as you gathered already, we looked together at a very famous, perhaps the most famous story of the Old Testament, perhaps the whole Bible, really. A great story of epic proportions, this story of David and Goliath. But you know what? As great as this story is, it merely serves in the Bible, it merely serves to whet the appetite for an even greater story, of even more epic proportions a story of in fact the greatest victory of all time a story in which even we can become more than conquerors so make sure you have your Bible open at 1, chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17 this is our last time together in 1 Samuel there was a cue for a sort of a sigh of disappointment, never mind yeah you don't mean it uh, there's an outline in the, of your talk, uh, in the middle of the bulletin and let me pray and ask God to help us Heavenly Father, we really want to thank you for your word, and it's just so great to read. It's gripping. There are some things, Father, we find hard to understand, but, but really, Father, it's, we love reading it. We love reading it, Father, because we meet you, and uh, you reveal yourself to us. And that's our prayer again this morning, Father, that we want to meet you and understand more of you and understand more of us in relationship to you. And so we ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point one on your outline. The setting of our chapter is the by now I hope familiar scene of the Israelites in conflict with the Philistines. In verse 1 of chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokor in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Demim between Sokor and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Okay, can you picture the scene there? The Philistines on one hill, the Israelites on the other, and there's a valley between them. And so this stage is set for battle, for a big battle. But instead, we are introduced to a very big man. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. So rather than the whole Philistine army, which we're sort of used to from the earlier chapters, now we see the Philistine threat is focused in this one man. And this one man, though, he poses a very serious threat. He is the Philistine champion. In other words, he represents the Philistine nation, the Philistine army. And he is massive, nine feet tall. And the narrator in these verses goes out of his way to make sure that we appreciate his armor. So let me read it again. I can't read it as well as Laura, I'm sure. But see if you can picture it as I read. Verse 5. He had a, Just imagine it. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, about 57 kilograms. And on his legs, he wore bronze greaves. This was state-of-the-art armour, okay? Lots of bronze. He appeared impenetrable, unbeatable, indestructible. And his state-of-the-art armour was matched by his state-of-the-art weaponry. A bronze javelin, we're told, was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, about 7 kilograms. His shield bearer went ahead of him. The javelin may well have, in fact, been like a curved sword. The spear may may well have been one that was slung for more power and greater accuracy. And not to mention his shield that was so large it needed someone to carry it for him in front. See, the detail in these verses matter. The narrator doesn't want us to miss the fact that this Philistine champion was a fearsome enemy by any reckoning. Terrifying, powerful, strong, seemingly invincible. And we're not even just told what he looked like, we're also told how he sounded. And in one word we could really capture it, defiant. Defiant. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man. Have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day... I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Can you picture it all? This mighty Philistine champion, this fearsome enemy, is defiant. He mocks them, he taunts them, he belittles them, he defies them. And you know what? The mocking of Goliath was even more potent than even he knew, I would suspect. Just notice what he said to them. He called out to them, Choose a man for yourself. But that's exactly what they'd already done. Do you remember? They'd already chosen a man for themselves. They'd chosen Saul. Saul should have been the one to face Goliath. But Saul clearly is not the champion to face Goliath. Verse 11 On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Dismay, terror at the defiance of Goliath. He defies the army of Israel. He defies King Saul of Israel. He defies the people of Israel. But more than that, of course, he defies even the Lord God himself. We'll see this spelled out more clearly as we continue to read, but it's important to see it now. And we have thought about this earlier in 1 Samuel. The Old Testament Israelites, remember, were not just any old army. The Old Testament people of Israel were not just any old people. They were the people of the Lord. They were the army of the Lord. They were the people on whom the Lord had placed His affection. They were the people whom the Lord had chosen to be especially identified with Him. They were the bearers of the promises of the Lord. They were the people through whom the Lord was particularly working out His plans and purposes for the whole world. These were the people... To whom the Lord had promised through Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And so this fearsome, defiant enemy, he wasn't merely mocking the army. He wasn't merely mocking the people of Israel. He was mocking and defying the Lord himself. But you know, as great and as powerful and as fearsome and as defiant an enemy as Goliath undoubtedly was, there is an even more fearsome and defiant enemy of the Lord and his people. A fearsome and defiant enemy that existed before Goliath and indeed we too still face. The enemy is death. And what makes death so terrible is sin. Sin is the sting of death. Because sin means that death, for us, leads to judgment. And of course, the one who holds the power of death, we're told in the Bible, is the devil. Death reigns in this world. And in death, sin reigns in this world. And through death, the devil exercises his power. And death really is the great mocker of the Lord and the Lord's people. The Lord's plans and purposes have unfolded down through history, always under the shadow of death. It's just like the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He said, man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Death is the mocker of the Lord, the Lord's people, the Lord's purposes. And even Goliath, nine feet tall, bronze armor, bronze helmet, shield, sword, spear, fearsome enemy. He he was nothing compared to sin, death and the devil the ultimate enemy. So much so, you know, that the Bible describes us people as all our lives held in slavery by our fear of death. All of our lives held in slavery by our fear of death. That's a powerful description, isn't it? It's in, a, in, in Hebrews chapter 2. All our lives held in slavery by our fear of death. powerful description, yet it resonates with us, doesn't it? it it's true. And so you see, as we continue to read through 1 Samuel 17, and we read of this great, fearsome, defiant enemy of the Lord and his people, we need to keep in mind the ultimate fearsome and defiant enemy, death, sin, the devil. And let's see what lessons this chapter might have for us concerning them, as well as Goliath. And so as we turn back to our passage, and we resume the action, we see the focus shifts now away from the fearsome defiance of Goliath, And onto the Israelite side of things. And in particular, onto the boy David, the son of Jesse of Bethlehem. Point two on your outline and verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, the third Shammah. And David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. It's a very peaceful scene change, isn't it? You know, from the taunting of Goliath, from the bellowing taunts of Goliath, suddenly, you know, scene changes and you can hear sheep and it's sort of peaceful and stuff and We're taken away from a battle scene to Jesse's family, in particular to this boy, this very young boy, David. Too young to be in the army, just tending the sheep and going back and forth between the farm and the battle. It's a really peaceful scene. And yet we know more about this David than is revealed in these verses, don't we? There is a truth about David hidden to all, except to those who have been included in the Lord's point of view. That's what we thought about last week. To those who can see things as the Lord sees things. Because David is no ordinary boy. He is the anointed one of the Lord. He is the one chosen by the Lord for himself. He is the one, remember, on whom the spirit of the Lord had come, had rushed upon. He is the Christ, in other words. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord's chosen king. And it's from that perspective, with that viewpoint that we watch David as he moves into the action. Verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. That last verse makes me wonder about the sort of letters Jesse was receiving from the front. From his boys, they might have been a little bit exaggerated, I'm thinking, because there there wasn't much fighting going on. There was lots of hiding, but not much fighting, but that's okay. David heads out with his grain and his bread and his ten cheeses, which which is fascinating, isn't it? He arrives at the Israelite battle lines, greets his brothers, and then he hears for himself the defiant taunts of Goliath. Verse 23, jump down with me, verse 23. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Here is the anointed king, anointed by the spirit of the Lord, surrounded by the fearful people of the Lord, facing the taunts of the defiant enemy of the Lord. His response, verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's a great question, isn't it? See how David, empowered by the Holy Spirit, immediately sees the truth of the situation. He sees that this is more than a military problem. This is a spiritual problem. This is a theological problem. He is an enemy of the Lord. He is an enemy of the Lord's people. And he defies the Lord. He defies the army of the Lord. So forget about the fact that he's nine feet tall. Forget about the armor. Forget about the weaponry. Don't see as man sees. Don't be fooled by appearance. Who does this guy think he is? Who is he to mock the Lord? His mocking is a disgrace. It actually brings shame upon the name of the Lord. See, there is the conviction of the Christ, a concern for the glory of the Lord, a conviction of the strength and the holiness of the Lord. And I reckon, you know what, we ought to cheer as we hear David's words. We ought to cheer as we hear David's words there. But sadly, his oldest brother, Eliab, he sees only as man sees. All he can see is a pesky little brother who just wants to play at soldier. Verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now remember, Eliab, of course, was the son of Jesse that Samuel had marked out initially as king before the Lord corrected him. And a liar would have seen David's anointing. Which means that here in this verse, he either didn't understand what was happening back home with Samuel, or else he did understand it and he rejected it. And maybe it's sibling jealousy that explains his anger. Maybe he just couldn't understand why the Lord would have chosen David and not him. But his response illustrates just how hidden, how unexpected David's role was to be. David's response there in verse 29. Now what have I done? Said David. Can't I even speak? That's classic, isn't it? That's been repeated in every family of brothers down through time, I'm sure. (laughs) But David persists in asking his question around the camp until news of it even reaches King Saul. And so Saul sends for David. And we get this amazing encounter now with our eyes enlightened by the word of God. We get this amazing encounter between the king the people had chosen for themselves and the king the Lord had chosen for himself. Verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. He's just a boy. But he's the Christ of God. He will uphold the name of the Lord. He will save the people of the Lord. He will fight him. It's stirring stuff. But Saul will have none of it. It's too strange to him. It's too bizarre. He's just a boy. How could he possibly be a match for Goliath? But listen to the faith of David. Verse 34. David said to Saul, "'Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. "'And when a lion or a bear came "'and carried off a sheep from the flock, "'I went after it, struck it, "'rescued the sheep from its mouth.' When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. At first there, it seems David's just seemed to be boasting in his own fighting ability. It's like he's giving Saul his military CV. But we need to keep listening to see what lies at the heart of David's confidence. Can you see it in verse 37? 37. The Lord... Who delivered me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. See what lies at the heart of David's confidence? Not in his ability. His faith, his confidence is the Lord as his deliverer, as his saviour. And what David tells Saul is what Saul should already have known the Lord saves. Out of concern for the holiness of his name, out of love for his people, the Lord delivers his people. The Lord saves. And it's the faith of David that we see in those verses. It's his faith in the strength and the power and the holiness of the Lord. He's a very unlikely champion, is David, from a human point of view. And even though Saul is won over and lets him go, he still tries to dress him in his armour. He still tries to equip him with his sword. He's still worried. David shrugs him off. Verse 40. David took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. An unlikely champion. But a faithful champion. David approaches Goliath, equipped really only with his confidence in the Lord's deliverance. And for Saul as he watched, and for those Israelites watching from their hillside, it must have seemed very strange indeed. Seen as man sees, it must have looked ludicrous. A boy, a sling, some stones, facing up to a nine-foot armoured experienced warrior. And can I say the same is even more true, of course, of the ultimate Christ, David's greatest ancestor, Jesus. We began to think about this last time too, didn't we? Remember the message of the angels to the shepherds in that field in Bethlehem? Today, in the town of David, has been born to you a saviour. A saviour not from the taunts of the Philistine, a saviour from the ultimate enemy of sin, death and the devil. But Jesus looked a very unlikely champion, didn't he? Even more unlikely than David confronting Goliath. Just a baby born to a young woman, pregnant out of wedlock, who grew up in a working family, swinging a hammer with his carpenter father, in the back blocks of Nazareth, a bit of a laughingstock of a town, really. Could anything good really come from there? His family, as he grew up, he thought he, they thought he was nuts when he started teaching and travelling. He embarrassed them. They tried to get him to come back home. The religious leaders of the day, they despised him. They mocked him. They planned to execute him. He hung out with the lowlifes, really, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners... And even though everyone warned him not to go to Jerusalem because there was only a cross waiting for him there, he set his face to go nowhere but Jerusalem. And when he got there, sure enough, he was arrested, unjustly charged, sentenced to death, spat upon, rejected, mocked, nailed to a cross as a criminal, hung between two other criminals and just left to die. And for those watching Jesus, he must have seemed a very unlikely champion to take on sin and death and the devil. The words of those angels way back at his birth, they must have sounded stupid, a joke. In fact, his followers all pretty much deserted him. Very strange to take on sin and death and the devil by dying, by being crucified, by being cursed. Confronting Goliath with a sling and some stones and a staff was nothing compared to that. And yet, you know what, through it all, Jesus' confidence was in his heavenly Father. And even as he hung dying, he assured one of the thieves next to him of deliverance. Even as Jesus died, he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Just like David, but even more so, Jesus entrusted himself to the Lord. Just like David, but even more so, Jesus' concern was to glorify the name of the Lord. Jesus was the ultimate, unlikely, faithful champion of the Lord and his people. And he faced the ultimate enemy. And so back in 1 Samuel chapter 17... In the outcome of David's battle with Goliath, we actually see the anticipation of the outcome of Jesus' battle with sin, death and the devil. Point three on your outline. And of course, it's a famous encounter, isn't it? Let's pick it up in verse 41. 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome and he despised him and he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? the Philistine cursed David by his gods come here he said and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field this Christ of God despised by Goliath because he was an unworthy opponent so weak, pitiful like Jesus, nailed to that cross, himself dying, how could he rescue anyone from the power of death? I mean, the devil must have been beside himself with joy. The Son of God, his ultimate victim. But like Goliath, the devil was blind to what was really going on. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Isn't that a great speech? What confidence! What a Lord who saves, not by spear or sword. Because the Lord Almighty is the Lord of armies. He is the Lord of hosts. He is incomparably holy. We thought about this our very first week in 1 Samuel back in Hannah's prayer, remember? He shatters all those who oppose him. He gives strength to his king. Whether it be a boy facing a giant or a battered, beaten Jesus nailed to a cross, the battle is the Lord's and he gives strength to his king. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. What an unlikely victory. But what a glorious victory. The one who mocked and defied the Lord is now himself mocked and defied. We remember Goliath as a giant who was struck down by a boy. His head is carried around as a trophy by a shepherd boy, armed only with a sling and a stone. And as the champion of the Lord's people, you see, he saved them. The Lord delivered his people through his Christ. His victory was their victory to the glory of the Lord. And down through time, you know, Jesus' speech His victory speech was far briefer than David's, but far bigger. Jesus just spoke three words. But what great three words. It is finished. It is finished. In the very act of dying on behalf of his people, in bearing our sin, Christ defeated the devil. It was finished. So that now we have been reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. So that even we may be presented wholly in the sight of God. So that even we can be presented without blemish, even free from accusation. Because you know what? If you belong to Jesus, the devil has no hold over you now. He has nothing to accuse you of. Because it's all been dealt with. We have been completely justified in the sight of God. We have been delivered. And listen to how the Apostle Paul describes in Colossians chapter 2. It's on your outline. He says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And catch this last sentence. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Can you see it? What a triumph. So unexpected and so glorious. A cross, a symbol of shame and curse. And yet it was on that cross that Christ made a mockery of sin and the de- and death and the devil. And just like David parading around with the head of Goliath, Jesus disarmed the devil and sin and death by his saving, justifying death on the cross. And his victory was revealed and declared in his resurrection from the grave. Death defeated, sin defeated, the devil defeated on that cross. It was finished. And so that as Goliath once taunted David and the Israelites and even the Lord himself, now now we can taunt even death. The roles are reversed. Even we now can taunt our ultimate enemy. And so in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again on your bulletin, we read this. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the Lord. But thanks be to God... He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's worth a cheer, isn't it? Where, O death, is your victory? I used to fear you, but no longer. No longer. Where is your victory? Where is your sting now? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is victorious. He is our victorious champion. And through him... And in him, we share the victory, you see. We share the spoils of victory, life, forgiveness, justification. It's all ours through the Christ, the ultimate Christ, Jesus. On that day, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, God's people were rescued from the Philistines. And on that day that Jesus died, we were rescued from death and sin and the devil And so you know what? Tomorrow, even this afternoon, may well be a day of struggle and hardship. May well be a day of disappointment and difficulty. But because of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what happens this afternoon, no matter what happens tomorrow or any days that might come after that, you can be utterly sure, utterly sure, that nothing, none of those things will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus your Lord. Nothing can separate you from his love. Not the present, not the future, not any powers, no, no angel, no demon, nothing at all. Nothing, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Christ Jesus is the victorious champion. And in him, in him, even you are more than a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. So thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to give you all the thanks and all the praise for that stunning victory over sin and death and the devil. Father, we thank you for rescuing us. But Father, we're more grateful that you've brought honor to your name. We're glad, Father, that the mockery of the devil and death and sin has been silenced. We're grateful for the victory of the Lord Jesus, the Christ. And Father, we want you to help us, please, in whatever today might bring and tomorrow and the days after that. We want uppermost in our mind, Father, the victory of Jesus. Because it's in that victory that we have hope. We want to be reminded, Father, that we are more than conquerors in Him. We want to know, Father, we want to remember, we want to be convinced that because of Jesus, nothing, nothing can separate us from your love. No disappointment, no hardship. Nothing can separate us from your love. We struggle to believe that at times, Father, just in the, in the difficulty of life. And so we ask for your help. And perhaps, Father, with it's such a memorable story, David and Goliath, That maybe even that story would be stored now in our memory. But as we think about that story, we'd actually see something even greater. We'd see Jesus conquering death for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.